And so I'm Olivia, and um, Megan is the other person that talks. Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a consultant living in Ukraine and London, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian, student, and freelance book indexer, querying my first novel, drafting a second, and researching a third. Today on our show, we're very excited to talk to cartoonist, author, and educator Jessica Abel. Jessica is the author of the graphic novel La Perdida, which was the winner of the 2002 Best New Series Harvey Award, as well as Trish Trash, Roller Girl of Mars, which was nominated for two Eisner Awards. She's also got two collections of stories from her omnibus comic book, Art Babe. She and her husband, the cartoonist Matt Madden, were series editors for the Best American Comics from 2007 to 2013. Together, they've authored two textbooks about making comics, which are called Drawing Words and Writing Pictures and Mastering Comics. Her book and podcast, Out on the Wire, is about how the best radio producers in the world use stories to keep us listening. Jessica is currently the chair of the illustration program at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. Both within and without PAFA, Jessica helps creative people with big ideas to get past procrastination and anxiety and get on with the business of making their potentially transcendent, game-changing creative work real in the world. We're big fans of all the things that she's put out about creative focus, and we'll link to some of them in our show notes. Jessica lives in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania with her husband and their two children, and we're very excited to share our conversation with her on our podcast today. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Our podcast, as you may know, has a theme of sort of three elements, so writing, work, and friendship, and uh, especially work and writing is a big part of what your online writing and the books that you've written are about and things like that. So before we jump into all the different great advice that you have, could you maybe just tell us about the confines of your work and kind of how that's evolved over time, including any maybe day jobs that you had as well? Sure. So I am, um, I'm a cartoonist and author, and I've been doing that since I was, I don't know, basically since I graduated from school. Um, initially, obviously, I had day jobs, which were waiting tables, day jobs, and those kinds of things. And then I worked in um, on the administrative side at a couple colleges until my sort of late 20s. But when um, I was 20, 28, I guess, I moved to Mexico City for a couple years, um, which because of the exchange rate and still getting illustration and comics work from the US, I was able to quit my job and essentially didn't have a day job again until very recently. Um, I did teach and do other stuff. You know, I had a lot of gigs of various kinds. Um, I was, you know, doing adjunct teaching for many years at SVA in New York. Mm. Uh, I was the um, co-series editor for the Best American Comics for six years with my husband. Um, I had a bunch of other things like that that I did, but didn't have any sort of um, salaried, you know, day-to-day job until the last three years when I've been the chair of the illustration department at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. And um, also in the last three and a half, four years, pretty much parallel with starting at PAFA, I've been 
developing group coaching program called the Creative Focus Workshop and doing individual coaching about exactly what you're talking about. So not just writing, but any kind of creative work and your life. Like how do you make those things happen <laughs> in concert and, you know, coordinate all those moving pieces. Yeah. And we, we both have bought um, Growing Gills. And so we sort of worked through the workbook that you have there. And I really like the phrase that you use, creative focus. So since that is a big part of, I guess, your professional life, at least, um, and probably your creative life, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that and why it's important? Well, I think there's, I mean, it's important in so many different ways and so many different levels. And I think, you know, some of them are ways that you talk about a lot on your show, just this, that maintaining a connection to your individual creative work and, you know, that sort of inner drive that you have is incredibly important. No matter what is going on in your life, it is something that feeds you and makes everything else function, (laughs) you know, like you have to have that part. And I think that that's all that that maintains no matter what else is going on in your life. So having a focus on maintaining your creativity is really important. But also, and more pointedly, what I mean by it is carving out space in your life for focusing on the big projects that are really going to move the needle for you, both professionally and in terms of your more personal creative goals. So you know, and, and in terms of my coaching and stuff, it's more like, how do you make this part of your daily life? How do you make this something that you are doing and not just thinking about doing? Um, it's really, really hard, as you know, when you have, um, day jobs or gigs the way I did and family and friends and whatever else, you know, procrastination is a huge thing. Um, and, um, perfectionism is a huge problem and self doubt and all those kinds of things. But just the way modern life is structured with just throwing us into reactivity just all the time. You know, there's constantly stuff coming at you and trying to figure out how to grapple with that stuff when it's safe to ignore it. You know, how to deal with all those things is just, it's an, it's an enormous job um, to just deal with that. And then to find that focus, you know, that calm place where you can be and you can think strategically and you can think in big ways. You can take disparate ideas and class them together and see what comes out of it. I mean, that's just a really um, incredibly difficult thing to do. Yeah, it is. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm giving leading, leaving time for Megan to react to, so I'm not dominating it. No, I always make Olivia start um, with all the questions. <laughs> <laughs> it takes me a bit to get going. So, Well, following on from that, so I mean, I could ask you probably a million things, and I'm sure everybody is different, but where where do you think if people like this whole idea of creative focus, I have some specific questions that are about me <laughs> probably a little bit later. But um, where do you think that people need to start? Like if they feel, OK, I want I mean, a lot of the people who listen to our podcast are probably people who are trying to get into a writing routine or who are already writers. But, you know, the whole idea of focus is something that I think we all just constantly struggle with, um, I guess. Where do where? should people start? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, to just to be clear, this is something that affects both people who are more or less beginners trying to figure out how to make this happen at all. But it definitely affects professionals as well. And a lot of people I work with are professionals and they're doing incredible stuff in their job as professional writers or, you know, um, visual artists of one kind or another. But they're trying to make sure that the bigger picture stuff happens too. The things that, you know, the book that nobody's asked for yet, but you have to put together the proposal so that you can actually get to that point. 
you know, that work, that sort of perspective work on bigger projects is what moves a career, you know, in addition to your own creative sort of inner goals, that's what moves your outer life forward. And so if you don't make time for that, you get stuck, you know, you sort of stick in one place um, for, you know, far too long it can be really, really frustrating. So in terms of starting that, I mean, the first step I always ask people to do, and it's always one that's sort of, I mean, it's difficult for everybody. It's tedious. It's, it's no fun, but it's remarkably eye opening is tracking your time. Yes. Yeah. So it's a big hurdle, right? People just resist that like crazy because I mean, it's so boring, <laughs> right? But um, <laughs> the second you do it, and I mean, actually tracking and not down to like the five minute increment, but to like to half hour increment your entire day. What are you doing all day? What are you actually doing when you think you're doing whatever you put on your list? You know, and I think that is a um, wow, it's just an incredibly difficult thing to to physically do to remember to do, but also then to face what's actually on that list is never pretty. Like that's not fun. So time tracking and then alongside time tracking, what I do is I have people plan what they think is going to happen the following day, the evening before. So don't do it on the morning, do it in the evening and then track alongside it and see what actually happened. And so this is just a data gathering exercise. It's not about, I mean, certainly the planning piece of it, you can get better at that, you know, that can help. Yeah. But, um, the, the main thing is, you think you're doing this, you think you can do this. And this is what is actually happening. So let's pay attention to that. Let's actually take that in and respect that this is the reality. And um, go from there instead of going from this fantasy version of what you think is happening. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, in fact, this morning, I had planned before we spoke to work on the the novel that I'm working on, um, which by the way, is my one goal. And I we'll probably want to talk to you more about the concept of picking one creative goal to focus on at a time. Um, but instead I started thinking about how I'm getting a haircut tomorrow and maybe I want to cut it off. So then I started looking at pictures and I mean, I did, I spent an hour and a half doing things that had nothing to do with my book and now I've written zero words for the day, um, <laughs> which and it happens. And I think the more you, the more you track and the more you keep up, cause this is something that we've advocated as well is, tracking your time and just kind of figuring out what you're doing um, and planning. The more you do it and the more you see like, yes, this is this is a pattern of mine, but also these are these other times that I have actually done what I said I was going to do, the less um, guilty I think you feel about it and the, the easier it is to recover and to say, you know, you can have a clean start or a fresh start like in the middle of the day. You don't have to wait for the next day or for Monday um, to just say, okay. Yeah. Every, every minute of every day, you can have a fresh start. You know, you can just decide, okay, I'm just going to stop doing that now and do what I want to do. You know, I think that what you, what happened this morning is probably a combination of you actually wanted to do that work before you get your haircut because you want to know what you want to do. Right. So like that was actually a thing you should have put in your right, schedule. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. that's one piece of it. And the other piece of it is that's a little less cognitively, cognitively demanding than working on your novel this morning. And so it's easier to fall into that. And so there's a bit of avoidance going on, you know, but my, my stance on time tracking, um, and really on everything in terms of paying attention to what's going on is 
take on a scientific mindset. You know, try to pretend you are a social science researcher doing a time use study. And you're just pinging yourself every half hour going like, what's going on now? What's going on now? Hmm, interesting. That's fascinating. You know, <laughs> like, just, just pay attention, you know, and try to, and I know this is impossible, but like, as much as possible, try to reserve judgment and just say, well, mm. you know, it looks like every day around four o'clock, I'm on Facebook, Facebook, I wonder why that is. Hmm, maybe I'm tired and need yeah. a break, you know? Well, and energy tracking too, which is to me is completely separate from time is, um, is something that I find really helpful and just kind of checking in with myself four or five times a day and saying like, do I feel, how do I feel energy wise, um, has helped me kind of rearrange my, when I'm not doing day job things. Um, and even with that rearrange, what sorts of tasks I assign to what part of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can, you can track that right alongside your time tracking. Maybe it doesn't need to be every half hour, but you can do, you can add a column, you know, to your tracking sheet or whatever you're using and track your energy. And then that can also be paired up with, well, and what were you doing either right now or what were you doing the last hour that might've, you know, sapped you. And really you realize that, okay, so after writing for an hour, I need to get up and take a walk and have a piece of chocolate. Yeah. Always chocolate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think one of the things that's a challenge, I don't know, Megan, tell me how much this relates to you, because we have very different kind of day job and lifestyles, but um, is that when you're in a day job that's a really kind of nine to five day job, uh, you are measured by basically the time that you spend there. Um, Sometimes, I mean, you know, sometimes you're also, you have particular tasks or whatever, and it's very hard, like, it's very easy to think, okay, I just need to, like, finish these three things today. And you basically have eight or nine hours that you're supposed to do that task in or those three tasks in. Um, and so you're, like, your boundaries are static. Whereas in the creative world, you're basically trying to claw back as much time as possible and trying to be, it's, like, just a very different mindset, right? Um, and so you're trying to make progress that's a little bit less concrete often, like, for me, very late in a project, will I actually really be able to set some very specific goals? But until then, it's sort of fluffy. And it's really about um, just being in that space and keeping that space as uncrowded and attention wise as possible. So I don't know, that's a comment. It's not even a question. But I think one of the things is really just getting yourself and maybe you also can apply that to your your day job or your paid employment as well, but like thinking about your time in a different way rather than it being a kind of sentence, like I have two two hours and this is what I need to accomplish. It's more about being present in that space whenever you're there. Yeah, and I really think that's true in the developmental phase of most creative projects, including things like I'm going to build a business, you know. So yes, you want to like write X number of letters or something in a period of time. But really when you're dealing with drafting or thinking about planning or doing whatever it is, that's an open-ended task. You don't really know how long these things are going to take. And um, it's more, and so the thing I advocate for that is using what I call quota tasks, which are just time chunks. Yeah. So I'm going to spend an hour a day on this, or I'm going to spend two hours on Tuesday and two hours on Thursday or whatever it is. And just making sure that you guard that time and you make that time, um, you know, very specifically devoted to, this focus, um, you will move the, the project forward. And, you know, I think that, you know, at some point, like you're saying, at some point in the project, you can get a little bit more specific about like, I want to finish editing chapter five, you know, 
probably possible within X amount of time if you already know how long chapters one through four have taken you. But before you get to that point, having quotas to work on, you know, a project that's going to take you over several days or weeks to complete is a way of feeling like I really did what I said I was going to do. I, I fulfilled this, you know, contract with myself and I can feel good about what I did this week. It doesn't really matter how much I concretely finished because I put in the time that I said I was going to put in. Uh, yeah, it's I think it's really important, but it's also easy to get in the habit of being like, oh, I have this thing I'm going to do and I have an hour. So then I'm going to go on Facebook for half an hour, <laughs> you know, and you have to stop yourself from doing that. Yeah, the time is the most important thing, right? It's just and that's the focus thing, too, is that you have these boundaries around that time. And I think that it's important, too, if if something like um, Facebook or Instagram is like really tempting to you to make sure you're not doing it right before that either, because then it's going to be really hard to stop. Yeah. And designing how you enter into your focus time is as important as anything else. You know, so you say you're going to work from eight to 10 on something. Well, from seven to eight, think about what you're doing. Don't do something that's going to like scramble your brains. Yeah. Well, so, and kind of a follow up to that. Um, no, I, I definitely agree. And, and we've talked before on here about creating a small, short ritual to kind of get you in the mindset of your creative work. But, um, and if I can add to that, I think not just a ritual, but mm-hmm. habits, the ritual can be a yeah. habit, but it doesn't need to be anything fancy. Your ritual can be, you know, so if you have kids, like you get them off to daycare or to school or whatever it is, and then you have to kind of calm yourself or whatever. So you get to wherever you're going to be working, you make a cup of coffee and, you know, you make it in a certain kind of way and you go sit in a certain place and that's your ritual. It doesn't have to be anything, you know, remarkable. It's like, this is the way I do things. And when I have this cup of coffee, this is where I'm sitting and this is what I'm doing. Right, exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. and, and something that's portable too can be really helpful. Like, for instance, um, I would dedicate a specific notebook to a specific creative project. And so whenever I'm writing notes or anything, I just have it with me for um, the book I'm working on. And then it just when I open that notebook, I know like that's what I'm writing in. Um, but it's not it's nothing it's nothing fancy and it's nothing that like ties me to a specific place in my house, for instance, um, or nothing I can't take with me. But so one of the things, though, kind of a follow up on that that I wanted to ask is when you how ha- how have you learned to one of the things that we've talked about on here before is that a lot of writing is not just the putting the words down. It's the sort of just the time that's spent thinking about a project or daydreaming. And so, for instance, with your quotas, it can be I'm going to spend an hour with my project, but it's not necessarily I'm spending an hour typing words on my keyboard. Um, but I'm not going to let myself be distracted by other things and I'm going to keep my mind on the project. Um especially in like the drafting phase, but how do you, how have you learned to kind of let yourself, because there's a big difference between the task oriented day job things um, where you measure project progress by things checked off your list. And then the sort of, I don't really know, time oriented or thought oriented sort of creative work. Um, How have you learned to be okay with that more open mindset and accepting and and or maybe you always have been just good at saying like not feeling guilty about your creative work being just sitting and thinking for an hour oh no I feel guilty about it don't worry (laughs) it's not yeah it's not I mean 
I feel a lot less guilty about it knowing now what I know about the creative process and how important that is. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely I've been, and a lot of the thing I'm, things I'm doing in creative focus workshop grow out of a lifelong quest towards greater creative productivity for me, you know, getting faster, getting, you know, sort of taking all of the fat out of the system. And then people seeing that and saying like, oh, I want to know about that. And then I'm like, oh, I can teach you that. Starting that and realizing that's not the problem. You know, that that's, that I can do that and I do do that. I mean, I do think I help people be much more productive and, you know, get faster at things. But I really hate calling myself a productivity coach because it implies that that's what's at stake, you know? And um, it's not. Like, you have to be able to let yourself go through that exploration process and the, I mean, basically making it your job to have that time with your project is the biggest key to that, you know, setting it up so that the night before you're like, I'm going to spend an hour working on this and working on right now, it looks like taking a walk, you know, with my voice recorder, perhaps so that if I think of stuff, I can like take a note while I'm walking. Um, that that's something that, you know, you know, we're grownups here, you know, what it looks like to have ideas. Everybody always talks about, oh, ideas in the shower, ideas when I'm walking, well, so why don't you make that a process? You know, why don't you actually make that part of what you are intentionally doing to to foment that work for yourself? The idea of saying like, isn't it weird how that, and then never paying attention to the fact that it's true, that, you know, when you have your body moving in some way, you're going to have different kinds of thoughts, different quality of thoughts than when you're sitting, staring at a screen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's, yeah. It's kind of tapping into the the tension between sort of a hack mindset and a creative space mindset and and yeah, but it is a hack, you know, right, like right. recognizing, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, so yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, it's not there's nothing woo about what I do. Like, I'm so anti woo in every way. Like, it's all about <laughs> observation and saying, well, that works. Let's do that again. And I mean, mm-hmm. down to the point where when I was um, younger, especially, but even now when I'm doing something really big. When I'm in the very beginning stages of trying to figure out what it is, or if I'm in the dark forest in the middle where I don't know what I'm going to do next, naps, very important. And I mean naps, I, I will, I won't let myself leave the space. I will lie down on the floor and let, <laughs> let myself kind of sort of sleep. And I feel terrible the entire time. It's an awful <laughs> feeling, but frequently that will get me past that, you know, tiny crisis and into the next little, not huge insights, but small, small insights. And, you know, taking a nap is something that will get you, you know, get your subconscious engaged and get you um, rolling again. And, you know, those things, you know, taking a walk, taking a nap, those things are quote unquote self-care, right? Paying attention to when you're hungry, eating something, um, finding comfortable places to be, not um, hating on yourself constantly for everything. Um, All those things fall under that heading of self-care. But the fact is that respecting yourself and your process and your brain and realizing that there is no should here this is there's only want to yeah so the guilt doesn't really play a part um those things are all incredible productivity hacks as well we do pep talks i'm pretty sure that last like couple of minutes gonna be a pep talk um and we'll release it separately because it's really great um i really like that not having having 
should only want is really important. And Megan and I have a kind of mantra we keep saying, which is that you're not doing it wrong, right? As long as you're sort of doing it and you're making moving forward, there's not like a right way to do any of it. Mm-hmm, for sure. I want to know, okay, so I have like, uh, let's say 15 tiny, well, ideas, most of them would be large projects if properly done. Um, and it's really hard to pick things. I really doubt that I'm the only person that's ever asked you this question or, you know, between your <laughs> coaching and everything else. So how do you, like creative focus, part of that is about obviously blocking out everything that's not creativity, but it's also about picking something and focusing on it. So any advice on that? Um, well, I guess my main advice, and it's not fun, is um, it doesn't really matter what you pick. Whatever it is, if you pick it and you put your full energy into it, that will pay off, you know, that it will become something that's, it, it's more than some of its parts and it will, you know, change the direction of your future choices. And, you know, the choices I've made have been somewhat bizarre at times. You know, I look back and I'm like, why did I decide to go down that road? But then when I did, once I did, it changed everything else. And, you know, I always uh, like to say that passion is not born. It's, it's, grown and nurtured like passion is something that comes out of the work it doesn't it's not something that predates the work so people are always like what's my passion you don't know until you start working so one of the things that happens when you have this giant ideas list and you're like i would really like to do x y and z you don't know maybe you don't know if you'd like to do those things and and at the same time if you really do do those things with your full heart and energy you probably will like them it doesn't matter what it is if you see what i'm saying it's like there's this kind of uh, relationship with projects where we think that somehow something needs to jump out at us and declare that this is the right thing to do. Well, the right thing to do is the thing that you do, you know, that you actually spend the time on. Um, and, and I really believe that. So there are other ways to pick. I mean, there's other sort of criteria you could use, like you can, um, do a kind of visioning exercise and figure out where do you want to be in five years? And so which one of these projects is seems most on the path to that thing? You can think about, well, if the, if this is professional work, what's the fastest path to cash? You know, that's a good way to pick. So there's a lot of different, you know, you can think like what's going to build my sort of professional or audience network most, like what's going to be popular, whether, whether or not it pays me, whether or not it's, you know, whatever. Um, how's this, how can this build bridges for me? Those are all sort of utilitarian ways of looking at it. You know, you can just think what calls to me most. You can literally put them in a hat and pick one, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. It really, that you're, that I have people set goals for like six weeks, maybe up to 12 weeks at a time, actual goals where I want yeah. to get to X point yeah. or I want to be working on this at, on a daily basis for this amount of time and hope to get to this point or whatever. Um. I don't particularly recommend people have very solid annual goals, much less five-year goals. Mm, But I do recommend vision. Like, where do you think you want to go? And then revisiting that regularly and watching it change because it will change based on what you spend your time on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, this is like always a live question for me because I have a lot of interest. But the other thing is, like I've stopped thinking or believing or trying to make myself believe that there's no right answer. So it's not really like there's some magic, like there's 20 ideas, but one of them is going to be the secret doorway and the rest of them are dead ends. Like 
all of them can open up to different things. And also maybe I think something is a really huge project and I start reading and all I really want to write is an essay as opposed to some huge long book. So I think those are two things also that are helping me, but they're also like practices, like mental practices. They're not things that I naturally believe. They're basically things that it's like I'm kind of telling myself, if that makes sense. But yeah. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. totally. No, I get it. I mean, it's difficult. And, you know, we all have these sort of, you know, fantasy lives in which we do all the things, you know, there's all these different activities and interests you can follow down the rabbit hole and, and do them all. And they're all great. Um, but you know, in reality, and like the reason I teach the one goal is this idea of focus that, and you say too, you, you guys, one of you guys said earlier, this, um, this idea that you spend, you know, if you're spending time with a project that the project will be moving along and that it will get deeper and that you will get there. And that that is the point is to be, you know, building a relationship with the work and that's where the best work is going to come out. That's the point of the one goal. Because if you're skipping around from one thing to another, you're not going to have that deep connection with an individual work. You're not going to be able to leverage the power of your unconscious, you know, when you're sleeping or, you know, between times when you can't work on stuff. If you're going to, you're on the same project, you're going to go back to the same project tomorrow and the day after that, your brain's going to be clicking away on it all the time. And sure, you might need a little break here and there, but you don't take a break with another giant project. You know, you do something small and refreshing and then go back to it, you know, and there are times when a project is, you know, you hit a dead end and it's a real dead end and you need to stop. And that's another, that's, you know, it can be tragic, but it's, you know, it's true. The main thing that you need to do when you pick one thing is not just, is not the, the point is not picking the thing. Cause you've already picked the 20 things. You're like, I want to do these things, right? They're already picked. What you have to do is unpick the other stuff. You know, you have to say no to all the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Or not right now, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, I think, you know, it doesn't mean they have to throw them away, but you have to say no. Like, I think that it, like, even saying not right now is like you're holding it in your head. Like, <laughs> okay, but I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, like, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. But like right now, this is in the archive. You know, this is like a, you can come back to it. It's still there. You haven't lost the information that this is something you like. But you have to say no to those things. And saying no is the key. Well, so along those lines, though, when you do hit that dead end, how do you let it go? How do you just say, no, this project is finished, even though maybe the finish doesn't look like what I thought when I started? I mean, I think a lot of times it just it peters out to the point where you're just like, Ugh. you know, but the, the, um, the, the moment of saying no, I think it's important to, you know, because there's probably a bunch of stuff in everybody's archives that is that's like that, that you you worked on it for a long time, you stopped working on it for various reasons, some of them having to do with the work itself and feeling like there's this isn't going anywhere. Some of it having to go with your going having to do with your life and who you are, and just not being that person anymore who was interested in that thing. And looking at those things and taking that in, you know, really understanding, yeah, okay, so I technically could go back and finish this thing. And maybe I feel like I quote unquote should because it exists, but the energy is not there for me. I'm not going to get results from this that I want. Like even if I finished it, it wouldn't, it either wouldn't be artistically what I want it to be, or it wouldn't have the commercial legs I need it to have or whatever it is that you've decided that it's just doesn't align with who you are as an artist anymore. And really, really truly acknowledge that to yourself. And it can, you know, there can be a period of mourning, I think, for really big things that you need to give up. 
acknowledging that these were really important to you at one time in your life, that this, this project was something that really meant something and it sort of defined something about who you were at that time. And then kind of very consciously boxing it up, either literally if they're physical things or, you know, digitally and putting it in an archive. Um, if you need to, I've had plenty of people burn stuff, <laughs> you know, shred yeah. it, whatever needs to happen so that it just, it really feels finished. Um, but when you're working on like a novel project for say 10 years or something, and meanwhile, you've learned how to write, you know, and so what you were doing at the beginning, you realize it just was a misguided project at some point and you try to salvage and try to salvage. And you're just like, this is, I'm just putting so much work into this thing and I don't even care about these characters <laughs> yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yes. That sounded like my thing. <laughs> wow. You've been in my head. Okay. You know, <laughs> Well, I can yeah. tell you, you're not alone. Um, but that moment of realizing that I just don't like, do I want to spend another, you know, six months, never mind five years of my life trying to fix this thing just because once I thought it was mm-hmm. a good idea, it's not, you know, those are sunk costs and sunk costs are, you know, it's been shown by various studies are like the hardest thing <laughs> to deal with, yeah. you know, just. Like, oh my God, I spent 10 years on this. How can I possibly? Well, you have to, you know, you have to put it away so that you can clear the slate and do yeah, something new. Yeah, for sure. And then, and that's something that, you know, for the most part I've managed to do with this particular one. It's now it's sort of like that person you knew in second grade who like pops up on Facebook and says, Hey, like, don't you remember me? And you're kind of like, yeah, but I'm not going to accept your request because I don't even know you anymore. <laughs> So I, love I that guess it's analogy. just, you know, a lot of it is just practicing dealing with these things over and over. It doesn't necessarily get better or it doesn't necessarily go away, but I guess it gets easier the more you train yourself to do it. Yeah. And I think it does get better to a certain extent. I think it does get, cause you, again, if you take on the scientific mindset and you look at yourself and you're like, who am I really as an artist? Like, what am I interested in? What, what is really um, exciting to me? in terms of spending this time that again, this is, is not should time, it's mm-hmm. want to time, right? So mm-hmm. if you really think about that, and you're like, okay, so this project over here represents the artist I was at 22. And I don't even know who that person is anymore. You know, why am I fixing her yeah. thing? <laughs> yeah. Instead of doing what I want to be yeah. doing. And so I think it can get easier, you know, as you just get more clear about who you are and, and what you want artistically. And that Again, to get back to passions and stuff, that comes from yeah. doing the work. Yeah. If you wouldn't, you know, it may still be a perfectly valid idea for somebody else to write. So if you don't know yourself as an artist through doing the work, then you're not going to know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're not going to know, like, is this right for me or not? But once you do the work, you're doing various kinds of work over years and learning who you are and paying attention to who you are, respecting who you are. Then you can make that decision really much more confidently, much more cleanly and say, yeah, it's, I mean, it's too bad that it didn't work out, but I totally see why. And that's fine. I'm on this yeah. other thing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, and that sounds, it's definitely, I'm sure Megan, uh, but for me, definitely echoing. So it feels very therapeutic to have you sort of say <laughs> all of that and I can finally let things go. I've got some other projects that we both basically abandoned a couple of projects earlier this year. And so that's helpful. So maybe you need to not think of it as abandoning, but they're finished, you know, yeah, closing, sunsetting, you know, that you're really 
um, you know, go back to those projects, get all the stuff and do something like ritualistic about it. And, you know, just put like physically put it someplace that's apart. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. We'll do a little ceremony or something. Um. (laughs) Somebody posted on Instagram like a whole video of her like burning her old notes for something and like tagging on it. I love that. Yeah. I have, okay, this is going to be a big topic and um, we don't have that much time, but I wanted to just briefly, since one of the other things that we like to talk about is just like how money in the creative business works and we haven't had anybody with your creative background, so sort of graphic novelist, illustrator, comics sort of background. So can you, in just a couple of minutes, tell us how the sort of financials of your industry work, so how people make money from that creative work and, and kind of how, I guess, your story as much information as you want to give away on that. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I came out of, uh, alternative comics, um, you know, sort of very much stemming out of the old school comics industry with individual issues coming out, all that stuff in the nineties. Um, and worked with a co- company called Thanagraphics, which is still around and is the oldest alternative comics publisher in the U S and they're great. Um, they do a really nice job, but the finances of doing those kinds of books, it's just, I mean, it's, hobby level like you just don't generally make any money from that kind of thing and when the whole industry moved to quote-unquote graphic novels meaning comics mm-hmm. with a spine that you can put on a shelf and not always novels you know <laughs> like whatever you have put a spine on they call it a graphic novel so when that happened then comics moved into bookstores there were more distribution channels and there's a, a bit more money in it but that kind of topped out at some point. And obviously there are people who are stars and bestsellers and that kind of thing. But it's a, it's a very low end and mid list author kind of model, very much like, um, at the moment, um, a lot of it is very much like just being a prose author, um, that you get a contract with the New York book publisher or with a company like Fanagraphics. You, they print a graphic novel. It gets sold potentially to specialty comic book stores as well as bookstores so that's an extra distribution channel but the numbers are pretty similar i think to like fiction writing or something yeah depending on what you're doing there are extra there's a lot of interest in ya so you know that pays a little bit better and it's just you know it's can sell a little better because of the whole library system um turning through so many books for their kids who love to read comics and there's also nonfiction comics, both journalistic comics and, and books like mine, um, Out on the Wire, which is my book about um, the narrative techniques of great radio and podcast producers like Ira Glass and Jad Abarad and Stephanie Fu. And uh, there's like 35 people in the book and talks about how do they build stories, um, which might be interesting to your reader. I mean, your listeners. Yeah anyway as writers because it really although it focuses on audio storytelling and it really is about storytelling in general but that's a book that's more like kind of a it's it's an essay essentially it's a thesis about narrative structure and that's a pretty unusual format but that those kinds of books can then break out of the niche you know that that out on the wire is something that's widely read and used in classrooms and stuff in the audio world in the podcast world so there's some kind of crossover things like that. And I think the way that most, so, and that's, so all the comics I'm talking about right now are people who are, they're cartoonists, meaning they write and draw. Cause the model in, um, superhero comics is usually to atomize that. So you have a writer, penciler, sometimes penciler and inker, you know, that those jobs get separated. Mm-hmm. 
and colorists, you know, did, did the production tasks are all broken down. And it's a very, very different industry. The pay structure is different. The, um, the audience is really different and the sales channels are super different. So, and I can't speak to that with great authority, but it's, um, often paid by the page rate. So like, you know, you're paid by the page and you do monthly books that then get collected and da 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 da. Maybe there's royalties on the back end. Maybe there aren't, you know, it's, it's complicated. But what I'm, the end that I'm in, which is again, cartoonists. So writer artists, both on the pop end and on the more quote unquote literary end, you know, the model is very similar to fiction writing or nonfiction for that matter. Like if you're doing nonfiction comics, like for the classroom and that kind of thing. And as a result, most people don't have a really hard time making a living from books, you know, same as with writers, Mm -hmm. maybe more so because it, because comics take so long to produce. So, um, plenty of books take a long time to produce, but imagine finishing your novel and then having to draw it. (laughs) Right. So there's, um, an extra large labor component, time component that gets added in. So it's quite difficult to make a go of it financially as a, as a cartoonist. And what most people do is they do like articles, essentially they'll do short pieces for magazines or they'll get special jobs doing this, you know, kind of for companies or for whatever they'll get illustration jobs. Occasionally people will do work doing say character designs for animation or something like that. You know, some kind of slightly one-off kind of work. Um, people do transition into animation sometimes from comics and do storyboarding for shows, which is a, obviously a totally different job, but, but something people end up doing a lot of times. So, you know, and people teach, you know, it's, it's not, it's other than the fact that you can do magazine illustration and, um, short comics for various kinds of outlets. It's, it is really parallel to the writer's life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of along those lines, um, because I know we have quite a few listeners who freelance for money and then they are also writing, you know, a big creative project that at as of, you know, right now or while they're creating it doesn't have uh, hasn't been sold or doesn't have a market, doesn't have a guarantee of any sort of financial return. Um, So how do you how does it work for you and kind of what sort of techniques you use as far as compartmentalizing or grouping one set of things as a, as separate from the creative work? Do you think of your freelance stuff as your quote day job or, you know, is the creative work what your, is your day job? Um, we've talked with some people before about how like they think of it in, ter- in terms of where they put their energy and the day job is not necessarily where they put their creative energy, but even though it's what pays the bills, do you, I, don't I think, I, I think that's a tough, problem. It's a tough question. Um, and for me personally, when I was freelancing, um, I would, you know, I was doing, I was teaching and I was in the last phase of my freelancing, I was teaching and I was working as an editor on best American comics, um, doing a little bit of illustration, but not a lot. So it was the kind of work was different. And so it was more easily separable. Oh, I also wrote two comic or two textbooks about comics with my husband Matt, mm-hmm. uh, Matt Madden, who's also a cartoonist. Yeah, that those was are great. Of- I'm working with um, a group of middle schoolers right now um, in the library about graphic novels and comics, and sort of exploring that. And so I just wanted using to throw out that those textbooks are awesome. Yeah, 
Awesome. That's great. Yeah, no, we're really proud of them. But they really that was, you know, an eight year project or something. Mm -hmm. So and that was kind of partly the creative work. It became the creative work. It had to because of time. Mm -hmm. And I find that work creative. I mean, it is creative, but it definitely took away from time for other comics that I might want to do, right? Towards the end of that time, I was working on, well, at the beginning of that time, I was working on Life Sucks and started working on Trish Trash, you know, in parallel. The very end of that time, I started the research for Out on the Wire, was still working on Trish Trash. Yeah, so there was some paralleling. And basically, I think I would, you know, teaching is easy because it's on a day, Mm -hmm. you know? Like you go, I don't mean it's easy to do, but I mean, it's easy to compartmentalize <laughs> because you're, it's on the day that it's on. Yeah. And certainly with court, with um, grading and planning and stuff, you need to uh, corral that. But again, assigning it time. And I, I think it might be more useful to talk about how I help other people do this now, because this is obviously a problem for most of the people I work with as well. Um, or not most, but many of them. It, wh- when you have similar freelance work to your creative work is when it's the biggest, the biggest problem. When it's not similar, you can template your week and say, well, Monday's for this and Tuesday's for that, you know, yeah. or mornings are for this and afternoons are for that. And it's easier to kind of break things down in a way that is maintain- maintainable because you're really switching mindsets and, you know, the whole mode needs to change. And what I find a lot of times is people end up not devoting enough time and energy to their day job. And as a result, they're frantic at the day job and that bleeds into the creative work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that people need to learn to fix is the day job part. Yeah. You know that if you are shorting your prep time for teaching and so when you get there you're freaking out and there's all this stuff that happens and as a result you have this kind of like pile up afterwards of stuff you need to deal with admin, you know, fre- freaking out students like you're exhausted and it's eating into your creative time instead of just going like well that I, you know, I hate teaching and I can't, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) instead you need to give it a little more time and attention before you go Yeah. and make sure you're ready so that it doesn't do this to you. So there's that. Um, but when the work is really similar, I mean, first of all, I, I generally think that's like not the best idea, like to design (laughs) your, your life so that you are say a copywriter and then a novelist is, you know, or a journalist and you know, something, whatever is, you know, you're going to use up your creative juice on the work, on the, the day job work, yeah. because it's the same kind of thinking, you know, the same kind of activity. And it's really hard to come home from eight hours of copywriting and then spend another couple hours on your novel. Like to, to continue to use that cognitive muscle is just really hard. So again, like alternating days you know, putting the um, work on the novel first in the day and using the best of what you have, you know, on that are, are techniques I would suggest, you know, it's, it's about being strategic about those things, but it may also be about like, well, you know, can I move into a role that is a little bit less similar to what I want my creative work to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's actually the advice to focus on your day job is advice you don't hear very often, but it makes a lot of sense. So you usually kind of hear the opposite. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, and I think that I understand why people say that. It's like, oh yeah, just, you know, like punch the time clock. Well, if you're literally punching a time clock, fine. But, if, <laughs> you know, if you're actually doing 
you know, high level intellectual work at some, at some point you, you have to, you know, give it its due and, and respect that. And when you do, like when you actually apply the same kinds of principles that I teach for creative focus to your job, your stress levels at your job go down. And when you come home, you, you have your brain still intact. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's really resonated for me because I think if you shortchange energetically your day job, then like emotionally it just bleeds into everything else. So I agree with that. Like the energy just gets sucked out, you know, and you feel like you're running and your boss is like, you know, worried about something and, for, you know, like laying it on you and you don't know what's going on with X, Y, and Z project because you haven't been paying attention. And like, how are you going to come home and be able to, you know, relax and get into a creative space and focus? You can't <laughs> from personal experience. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to run and we've also used up a lot of your time as well. So, but we really appreciate it. And all of this is really useful. I'm excited to edit it just so I can process it even more. Um, so really, thank you very much. I am uh, really excited to be here with you guys. And thanks so much for having me. I appreciate awesome. it. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, cool. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Marginally, you might also enjoy one of our favorite podcasts, Hashtag Am Writing with Jess and KJ. Every episode is full of great information and encouragement. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts or find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening.